Dr. Anu Sagar. And I'm Dr. Rashmi Venkatesh. And this is Gupshup. Dude, you know what's, what I've been thinking about is like, so, you know, it's kind of the holiday season for us. Yeah, folks, yeah, it right? is. But it's also coinciding with birthday season. And like, oh it's, it's rough. Like, first of all, like, I feel like I'm not doing enough as a parent for, because I mean, like, how do we grow up with pizza boxes and everyone was just like running batshit crazy, playing video games, like talking in the basement, whatever. And like some of these parents that we get invited to like go so all out. And my kids' birthday is in December, in late December, right? So by the time we even celebrate it, it's like January. And so I like get to see all of these birthdays past me. And then I'm like, oh, shit, (laughs) like I... But you got to ask yourself, though, who are those parties for, right? Like, who are those super fancy parties for? Because, I mean, obviously, I have I have no context for the children's birthday parties of a day of today. But I believe you that they've gotten very advanced. But like, even now, when I think about like, I don't know, like back in the day, if some parent got some like really expensive, I don't know, something venue or whatever, and some kind of like bespoke cake, like, as a child, all you want to do is run around and eat a bunch of stuff you're not normally allowed to eat and just like act a fool. So I don't like, it's like, are, are these, I mean, the question is who are these very elaborate parties for like two to four year olds really for? <laughs> I have no idea. What was your favorite birthday party that you ever went to? Oh my God. Um, okay. So it wasn't one of my birthday parties, but it was a friend of mine. Um, there used to be a place called Plaster Fun Time. That and so sketchy. <laughs> no, I swear to God, it was fun. It was fun. And it was one of those places where you get to, like, pick out your own, like, unglazed plaster figurine. Oh, like that clay cafe type. Yeah, thing. yeah. And then they give you a bunch of paints and they give you glitter and they give you all this other stuff. And you can do whatever you want. And then they'll go, like fire it for you in a kiln and while it's finishing you do like cake and ice cream and pizza and whatever and then you get to take home your little creation I was very 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 into the like paints and the glitters and all of the the little shiny things and and you could customize everything that was that was my shit and that and any birthday party with a pinata always right always a pinata you get to hit something and then you get candy. Like, I mean, you like, can't lose. Can no. You cannot lose. You know what? Like, speaking of which, I went to a birthday party recently and they had a pinata. And I was like, oh, this is great. Like, this is fun. This reminds me of when I was a kid. Okay. But why did out, like, out came Cadbury's, Lint chocolates, and like all these. <laughs> Ew. What? I was so irritated. I was like, where are the Skittles? You know, like, where are the... the oh, not even tappies? Skittles. Freaking NECA wafers. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, those weird, like, circus peanuts. <laughs> Just, like, disgusting, okay. flavorless. I remember. So, one of my favorite birthdays. I had, like, two favorite ones. And it was actually my two best friends. And when we were growing up, one was... um She had a pool in her backyard. And... Oh she was a triplet or she is a triplet and so she and her brothers would all throw this big pool party and everyone would just eat pizza and have like huge cake from like i don't know that's a wherever, good party right? from a kid perspective you get yes. pizza, you get a pool you get to act a fool outside perfect time also, from a child's perspective. yeah and she was like vietnamese so you know like vietnamese cakes are like desserts are amazing oh my God, and so, so good they would get like a huge cake um from like a vietnamese bakery and her parents love karaoke so they had like a oh full downstairs so all the kids would like get together and just like in swimsuits and, <laughs> and bust out karaoke in the middle and that is one birthday that i remember and the other one my other best friend had her uh, birthday around Halloween time. So we just like dress up and her mom would be like, here, Bob for apples. And they would just like put water in like a bin and put a few apples. That's amazing. It. I haven't Bob for apples in a hot minute. That was always, 
I'm like, man, you know, we had fun before the internet. You didn't need anything. You needed some water and some apples and you yeah. were good to go. And that's it. And those Neko wafer yeah. <laughs> pinatas. <laughs> right? Right. Just like half melted garbage candy. And you were you were in you were in heaven. You were in absolute heaven. You were a little sugar fiend. You were running around. You were doing whatever. And now it's like it's like the themes and the you know the very advanced birthday parties and like i don't birthday parties have gotten advanced but like you'll have to tell me have children gotten more advanced like i don't think so i think kids are just they're still children no they're still children but like you know i just don't know if the expectations of these kids have gotten advanced which is why my children are not going to be experiencing those birthday parties um from me at least because we're going to keep their expectations like pretty low <laughs> and then everything works you know you know what it, you know what it is it's better i feel like it's better to do that now and go hard when they get older and they can like verbalize what they want from you exactly instead of just like basically having a birthday party for you like a keeping up with the joneses party exactly what's an indian name for that though keeping up with the christian worthies <laughs> yes keeping up with the christian worthies <laughs> all right what what's on our list for today well, I mean, since you so eloquently talked about your birthday party related trauma, I thought I thought today our like our our topic for the day could be um, discussing generational trauma as it pertains to the South Asian American population or the they see diaspora, if you will. Yeah, that's a very heavy topic, um, but I think we can break it down. It's it's heavy and it's kind of like. It's heavy and it's disparate, but I think it's something that like we all have kind of like a baseline understanding of, you know, you know, that like emotional damage meme where I think it started on TikTok where like people would talk about stuff that their families did that caused them emotional damage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and how they're breaking it or whatever. Yeah. 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 And this is just kind of like sis like systematically discussing your emotional damage as it comes from you, but you, as it comes from your parents, but also surprisingly, as it comes from your grandparents, great grandparents, generations you haven't even considered, generations you haven't even heard of. Like the emotional damage has been damaging for years. And it's um, not only emotional, right? It's also the physical damage that's been yes. happening for years, which we're gonna get into. But um, one of the things that, that is interesting is that when a lot of people talk about generational trauma i feel like they talk about it maybe like a level above them to their parents and then sometimes to their grandparents and i don't think like it really is quite understood how far back it goes and to like what level of his historical trauma it's like connected to yeah absolutely no we're gonna go back to like bosco da gama today where oh, you are i'm not we're, 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 i mean just for a hot second but we're gonna air it all out like it, it's happening all so right. i think it would behoove us probably to start with like a formalized definition of generational trauma so we can be on the same page and kind of know what we're talking about yeah um, i also think it should be noted we're gonna get into like many there's a lot of definitions of trauma and we're yes. just gonna kind of like standardize it so that we have like kind of a talking point and this is not our definition. This is from the online counseling site Talkspace. This is their definition. There's multiple definitions that you can find through, you know, academic literature and stuff like that. But the online counseling site Talkspace defines generational trauma as the following. Generational trauma is the transference of a traumatic experience or stressor from one generation to the next. One of many types of trauma, it can happen through direct experience, witnessing violence or living in an environment where violence and a, it, violence is a constant threat. Um, and it's important to note here that violence doesn't have to be physical. Things like emotional abuse, discrimination, and other things can count as violence here. So it's, it's basically the um, passing down of reactions to hardship generation to generation. 
I also think it's like worthy to know that it goes like even further back, right? So Sigmund Freud in 1920 event like actually originally described or his initial view essentially on trauma was really this idea that trauma is essentially any event that is so overwhelming or so overpowering that the conscious mind is unable to accept it. And so we forget it. And however, part of his belief and I think it's so relevant, is that he talks about this kind of forgotten trauma, um, to your point, Rashmi, comes back in the form of somatic or, you know, physical symptoms that we see today. Right. So like a very, a very, I don't know, a simple day-to-day um, example of this could be like, say that you've been working really long hours at work and your kids have been stressing you out at home and your pet is sick and totally you don't even realize it, but suddenly you start waking up in the middle of the night with like heartburn every night and you don't make the connection. But then suddenly one day you realize your body has absorbed all of these physical stressors and you're not thinking about it because you're so busy trying to like push through the day, but your body is noting it and it's, it's exhibiting heartburn, which is a really common symptom of immediate symptom of, of trauma and stress. So it's stuff like that, but can also be on a larger scale and passed down through generations. Yeah. And like one of the, and you know, you and I were, were really looking at so much research around this and we were really struggling on finding anything. And I know you're about to talk about that, but there is a growing body of research that started starting to say, excuse me, the South Asian immigrants, uh, including us from countries um, that experience these types of traumas generationally are starting to have high rates of what they call non-communicable diseases, mm-hmm. which would you know include cardiovascular disease or diabetes, you know, yeah. chronic but not uh, communicable. Right, right, right. Yeah, and we'll 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 touch on that again later um, because the some of the biology is really amazing. So, um, like you mentioned before, Anu, in speaking about this research, you know, it's, it's important to note that a lot of this work um, has not come from the, the South Asian population. There's a remarkable lack of scientific inquiry into generational trauma among the South Asian American population or the Desi diaspora. But there has been some work on a population that was highly traumatized in the past, i.e. Holocaust survivors. And so a lot of this work is done on um, Holocaust survivors and their children and their ch- their children's children and how those populations have kind of seen their generational trauma move down their generations. Um, and also among indigenous populations um, in North America who have also been highly traumatized for several hundreds of years and how those populations have um, reacted both physiologically and psychologically to those traumas. So there's a lot of kind of theories that that came up in studying those populations that we can now apply to the South Asian population. Yeah, we like really struggled to find like good research on this one. And like a lot of it is almost peripheral research, which generally we tend to find because South Asians are just not researched as well as other, uh, you know, um, demographics sometimes, especially with like um, these kind of sensitive topics. Right, 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 right. So do you want to then rewind, take it back to the 1600s and talk about where this might have started? Yeah, of course. I love talking about the 1600s and uh-huh. where it started. Well, well, I would love to know where my generational drama started from. Well, so so it's interesting because the South Asian subcontinent has kind of always been in the middle of a lot of different cultural forces, right? Where South Asia is is situated is smack in the middle of the Silk Road, a lot of natural resources. So South South Asian populations were not naive to outsiders, um, you know, way back in the day. But I think the first people that really came with the intent to conquer were the Portuguese in the 1600s with Vasco da Gama. And that was kind of the beginning of a long history of colonialism and colonization by the Portuguese, pockets by the French, um, and then ultimately mostly by the British East India Company that really ripped apart the fabric of the various populations in South Asia. And I think was really one of the earliest tangible things that we can point to as what 
was the beginning of generational trauma among our population. So, yeah, I mean, you know, when I say down the generations, I'm talking like a hundred generations because we're going I mean, back so far. And like, you know, most, well, not most recently, but recent, actually not even recently, <laughs> a few generations back after all the, you know, after what, 400 years of colonialism, I would say, mm -hmm. um, I think it was 400. Um, we, you know, there was partition in 1947. Yes. And I would say like, that was like the most, the, you know, a distinct uh, split that also caused so much generational trauma. For Indians and Pakistanis specifically, other countries in South Asia have had their own huge traumatic um, things. For example, the Bangladesh's road to independence was right. not, that was in the 70s, even more recent. And that was a very- 1971. Yep. That was, you know, very violent for a lot of people in Bangladesh, you know, very traumatic experience. And that would have been our parents' generation that experienced all of that. And then even moving into our own generation, the Sri Lankan Civil War that was in the 90s into just a few years ago, hugely, hugely, hugely traumatic for Sri Lankan population, Sri Lankan diaspora. So it's kind of been like a series of violent events around the subcontinent from the mid 1900s even up until today um and so yeah and like you know i want to talk about you know with the more recent one of the things i think about and I, i'm going to table this topic because i know we need to keep talking about it but just you know the we're in kind of like the midst of the trauma that's being passed out we're like the first layer right because mm -hmm. all this happened with our parents honestly some of it didn't even happen with our parents because you know like i have siblings born in the 90s like it's you know what I mean? Like there, you know, there's, there's young people who are feeling the effects of it. And I just think about like our future generations and the trauma that's going to be passed on to them. But I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. The mo Like I want to start with partition because like, I think what we need to realize is that, you know, going back partition is really this kind of haphazard division of the country in 1947, but it was really characterized, and this is what kind of flows down this intense interreligious violence that was happening. And then we saw it happen again with the Bangladesh Civil War later in 71. And then we we felt the extensive loss of life, you know? And right. of course we saw that as well. With I think they said like one to two million people dying, um, yes. and I think twenty million of them like were forced into displacement. Yes, the state of Punjab was bisected as mm -hmm. a result of partition, and people who you know had lived for generations in their lives in Lahore, say, um, and who were not Muslim, who were Sikh or Hindu, um, and people who lived on this side of Punjab, the Indian side of Punjab in Amritsar, and who were Muslim suddenly felt the need to rip up their you know generation homes. yeah their generational homes and switch switch sides in heavy scare quotes because of these kind of deeply these deeply emphasized religious lines um and so it it yes was a huge trauma based on loss of loss of life but it was also a huge amount of displacement trauma right. um the number of people that had to pick up and leave and i think like that really comes down to kind of what you described as modern day energy intergenerational trauma my original definition that i picked up from sigmund freud or that i was able to look at but it, all this culminates in this idea of what was defined as historical trauma right and it was originally um it was originally developed to explain the long-lasting effects of collective trauma so partition being one of them 
uh, inflicted on indigenous people, actually. And, and this goes back to the fact that there's just not that much like South Asian research or like South Asian definitions of what our trauma looks like. Um, but it was, it did start with indigenous people with a particular focus on American Indians and of course that Alaska native population. But what makes it so unique, Rashmi, is really this idea that historical trauma is complex in nature and is very collective, right? And we know right. South Asians are naturally collective people. You're facing intergenerational effects, and it's really kind of this idea of people have, are starting to share a common identity. So they're sharing a common trauma, and it, that's being passed down generation after generation. And not only is, you know, colonization starting, like, you know, is a start of that, partition continues it. Right, right, right. Um, and, but, but like you went back to the Sigmund Freud definition before, um, it, it might not have been something that those people could really experience in the moment among the upheaval of having to move entire families and among the upheaval of having a brand new baby government, a brand new country. You know, there are so many things in instability at that point that I don't really think that people may have gotten the the time required or the peace required to, to sit with their trauma. Instead, everybody was in survival mode. It was a young country. People were starting over in a new place. And so whatever beliefs they picked up, whatever stresses they picked up, whatever ways they found to adapt that weren't necessarily healthy for them in the, in the long run, but helped them get through the day to day, those have been inadvertently passed down through multiple generations in a way that we can still see today. So I think there's kind of like two areas where we're seeing historical trauma, especially from like the partition and colonization. And I'm not even getting into the immigration because that's like a whole, whole another thing. And historically mm -hmm. we're seeing it, like, can you talk more about, you know, psychologically what we're seeing and then, you know, like we're seeing substance abuse down in the generations. We're seeing like, yes. you know, the fact that we don't do well with stress, you know, there's a lot of different things that we're seeing psychologically. And I know that's part of, you know, just kind of your research. And then also we're seeing these somatic symptoms so um you know let's talk about that so so i mean you see you see a lot of kind of conflict-based trauma right you see um really terrible family dynamics um you see unhappy or abusive marriages um that continue to go and remain unaddressed because all the parties involved in the family or all the parties involved in the marriage are heavily stressed they're not able to bring their best selves to their marriage or their family. They're acting out. Um, but, you know, people aren't able to leave marriages because you are so, you, you feel like your only shelter is in your community when you're ripped up from your mm. place of origin. You feel like you can't leave your community. Be, be that community, the community that you create with your spouse, be that community, the community that you create with your family, whatever it is. So even if that community is stressing you out, even if the, everybody in that community is, is, you know, acting as their worst selves and injuring each other emotionally, people don't feel like they can leave because they have been ripped away from everything else that they know um, by, by moving from their ancestral locations. Location. And one of the things that I have like particular interest in is kind of this idea of, you know, um, historical trauma and substance abuse. Right. Cause like mm -hmm. we, so, you know, I was looking at some research and it was saying like, you know, obviously the, the first generation of immigrants kind of had it right. And, and then for different coping mechanisms, but we're actually seeing a spike in the second generation and over time. But I think that it's all tied to, to history. Um, and I know that's yeah. your research topic. Like that's literally your bread and butter. So, well, yeah. So, I mean, not so much the psychological aspects of, of substance abuse, but you're totally right. I mean, substance abuse acts as a lot of things, but mostly it acts as a coping mechanism, right? It's either, you know, some people will say that it comes from a need for, you know, dopamine has become this, and we'll come back to this, but dopamine has become the shorthand for happiness or whatever. And that is, I would say, only part of the substance abuse story. Another huge part of the substance abuse story is for self-soothing, which is something that, you know, we hear a lot in terms of babies, yeah. right? Um, teaching kids to self-soothe and stuff like that. But like, you never stop 
needing to self-soothe. You never stop, like no human being ever stops needing to find a way to calm themselves down in an adversarial situation. And when you're in a place where you are always in an adversarial situation, where everything that's happening to you is adversarial, you, your, your, government, your government is chaos. You've just picked up from the land that you've always known and you've left. And then your family is chaos. Your spouse is, is chaotic and violent. Um, or, you know, emotionally abusive or what, whatever, like you do not have the powers within yourself, within your mind to self-soothe anymore. And so you turn to the easiest and cheapest way to self-soothe, which is substances. Um, And so like historically, this is why substance abuse has gone with trauma, because it is pharmacologically a way to soothe your mind. It is a way to detach. It's a way to remove yourself from the the stressors of your daily life, even just for a little bit, because there's nowhere that you can turn to get a respite from the chaos happening in your life. Um, And so that's, and that's why substance abuse tends to go hand in hand with with traumatic situations and, and, and populations with a lot of generational trauma seem to see an increase in substance abuse rates. And that's not a, not a, a a coincidence. Um, And also I think a lot of this comes with an inherent distrust of authority, right? You come from a colonial, a, a colonized nation. You come from a place where the people telling you what to do were the people that are hurting you. You, that doesn't put you in a situation where you feel like you're able to trust outsiders such as doctors or mental health professionals with, you know, your kind of deepest, softest, scariest parts of yourself. Because historically, all you've seen is the people telling you what to do have been people trying to hurt you. So you try to figure out a way to deal with that yourself. If you're not seeing a mental health professional, you're not seeing a therapist, you're not seeing a doctor, but you're still suffering, your problem is not gone, a, a quick solution is substance abuse. Yeah. And like, you know, that kind of goes with like the research of, you know, so Tara wrote in 2006 that stressors really triggered by mass trauma, partition obviously being one of them, people like really experience, you know, emotional wounds because of the community not only like what they've experienced but then what they've passed down and then you know situations where the people that you're closest to who've experienced it the way they react to you itself is like a passing on of the wound you know and so because of that you see higher levels of shame and social isolation and honestly aggression which is was not an interesting one but like one i feel like for me i have i feel like i experience a lot of strong emotions or a lot of anger and aggression within my community and you know that's just my experience like I never want to generalize it um but you definitely feel like the diminished self-worth with which I do think is common amongst us and then of course you know withdrawal and numbness and we have a lot of emotional responses which you know I know we're going to get into later episodes but that's kind of like you have these emotional responses but then you don't take care of them which just means that it's continuing down to another generation exactly exactly and it, it it's it's like you know that you have a lot of instincts as a human being that are meant to serve you when you're in a scary situation, right? You have a fight or flight instinct. Um, so, you know, you become very aggressive or you become very meek and that is supposed to, and that does serve you well when you're in a scary situation, right? But when your situation is always scary, then you are always in fight or flight. You are always aggressive or you are always overly meek because that's the only way that you learn to protect yourself. And then you have children and you're raising them and they're modeling their behavior after you. And you're either modeling the values of you need to be a fighter, you need to be very aggressive, or you need to keep your head down and you need to be very meek in order to survive in this world. And despite not having been uh, exposed to the same stressors that you were, they're absorbing those behaviors because you're showing it to your children and then you're reinforcing those behaviors. You're teaching it to the future generation. And this is kind of how these, these traumas happen, right? Like 
No, I totally agree. And like one thing that people don't quite understand, and I think it's like worth noting, and it's something that we've talked about before, is that a lot of these kind of emotional responses to trauma or just like how, you know, how we experience the world, right, in turn impacts kind of our physical health by triggering Mm -hmm. like not only behavioral patterns that are not great, like, you know, eating unhealthy diets and not working out or just like physical inactivity in general. And then of course, like what we talked about is substance abuse and our, like to your point, our children continue to see that. Um, and then, and then they just repeat the behavior. Right. And so in that way, there's like the passing down from generation to generation, but then there's also you know, you and I have talked about the importance of like mothers experience, experiencing trauma and having children and how trauma, like the trauma that the woman experiences and how they, you know, uh, carry the child, whether it's like eating poorly or they're um, stressed out or they're mm-hmm. depressed or there's just so many factors which can play into what the child is predisposed to when they are born and when they are grow up, growing up. So just like how many ways that generational trauma can pass down both genetically epigenetics and then of course socially is just like mind-blowing right and it's it's interesting because even scientifically it goes back further than you think it would so it's in the scientific community it is common knowledge that mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, as we all remember from high school biology. I feel like you honestly <laughs> just wanted to get some science into this conversation. But listen, we all know the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Ninth grade biology, that's the first thing you I learn. feel like you just like triggered some weird like science high school PTSD for me. Right, right. There's, there's going to be somebody out there for whom biology was like their worst subject. And they're like, ah, no. That's, that was literally one of my worst subjects. <laughs> But you'll be interested to know that you get all of your mitochondria from your mother. Um, And your mother got all of her mitochondria from her mother. So for a very short period of time, because mitochondria is passed down through the egg. So your mitochondria, which has its own DNA, by the way, mitochondrial DNA is its own separate DNA. And your mitochondria existed in your grandmother because it only goes back generation after generation like just right, imagine right. what you're carrying like, like your like your grandmother and what she experienced has impacted you physically has impacted your dna what was your grandmother experiencing and what was my grandmother experiencing famine baby famine 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 there were something like 40, there were more than 40 famines um, over the last 100 years of Indian history. Yeah. Those traumas, those physical traumas that our grandparents were experiencing, lack of nutritious food, um, you know, again, lack of rice, lack of any kind of those resources, they were physically impacting our DNA. Um, and so some of the, and, and one of the main things that we see as a result of this, um, is the incredible rate of type two diabetes in the South Asian it's, American population. Insane. And it, it, you know, that it's different because it doesn't follow the same pattern as diabetes follows in other populations. Um, Can you talk in, more about that actually? Yeah. So in other populations, it's, it's primarily, primarily a metabolic disease in that, you know, it's got to be somebody who um, really has something. It's it's usually accompanied by um, like a huge amount of visceral fat, um, which in itself can also be informed genetically. So that's totally different. So visceral fat is the fat that we store around our organs in the center of our body. So the fat that builds up around your liver, around your kidneys, around your pancreas, things like that. That's really where you don't want fat. Subcutaneous fat, you know, the fat that, that's in your arms and your legs and stuff. That's not going to be as bad for you as as visceral fat, the fat that builds up around your organs, because that fat can interfere with the healthy functioning of those organs. Right. Um, and so for South Asians, there seems to be a greater amount of visceral, visceral fat accumulation for the same amount of body fat. So if there is 
a South Asian person and a Caucasian person, and both of them have 25% body fat, the South Asian person will have more fat around their organs than the Caucasian person, even even, even though they both have 25% body fat. Um, and, and that can lead to a greater rate of diabetes, which is, it's like, it's not something that any of us can control. It's literally not, you know, you can diet and you can exercise all you want and you can waste away you can be wasting away and your genetics are still telling you that you might still get diabetes one day. And it's literally just because of the way that your body wants to store fat because of the types of hardships that your grandparents and their grandparents experienced. Um, you know, your DNA is moving on a, on a shorter timeline than you are. Like your, your grandma's your grandma is influencing your DNA and her grandma influenced her DNA. So you're only like one generation DNA wise away from your great, great grandmother. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And all the traumas that they experienced. So these things, they hit you in ways that you don't, that you don't even realize. I mean, it's, it's seen in, um, in Native American populations, there is documented evidence that chronic stress of being colonized has led to cardiovascular disease um, among the generations. And even now, uh, we see that in, in South Asian populations too. Um, again, we need to do research to, to kind of formally uh, f formalize the numbers. But, you know, there's a greater amount of cardio cardiovascular degrees, uh, disease, again, because as a direct result of the physical trauma that our ancestors experienced. And so it's, you know, it's not enough. It's not enough that we in the last generation have kind of like been in a situation where we have access to more nutritious food and, you know, maybe like a not just a basic survival kind of fitness regime like people are trying to thrive and be fit and it's 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 not this is not to say that it's not worth trying these things but it's to say that the the trauma that your bloodline has seen literally puts up barriers for you in achieving the kind of health that everybody deserves so i'm gonna say that you know similarly i think you know immigration trauma is even more recent and we're seeing a lot of effects of that um mm -hmm. one of the things that i think is interesting though is the fact that immigration trauma isn't necessary like we didn't come to america as refugees or our parents didn't come to america as refugees i mean like the majority of indians did right. not and and they see people right there could be different reasons i i actually had like a really good friend who whose parents came to America in order to get better health for their son. But I say right. all this to say, you know, um, so the researcher John Ogbu is somebody that I spent a lot of time researching and he really breaks down kind of the, this idea of voluntary and involuntary immigrants. And of course the voluntary immigrants are those who are like refugees or slaves or have been brought to countries against their will. That's like the easiest way to define it and, and pretty simplistic because it's much deeper than that. But, you know, for obviously being on a podcast, <laughs> it makes the most sense to define. Whereas voluntary immigrants like kind of came, uh, you know, at their own free will. And so we came or our parents came here, majority of them, you know, by their own free will, by a decision, whether that it was, whether the decision was the best life for themselves, the best life for their families, the best medical, you know, care or, you know, whatever it was, they were still voluntary immigrants. So, you know, you and I have talked about this idea of immigration trauma being interesting because it was still a voluntary movement, right? right. Which is different th than this idea of partition and uh, colonization, which was forced. So, right. but we're still experiencing trauma from like a decisive choice or, that we made. Right. Well, I think immigration trauma among the South Asian population is interesting because the involuntary trauma of colonialism happens so recently, right? If immigration trauma was our parents' generation, um, it was being magnified by our grandparents' generation who um, experienced the trauma of colonialism and then the trauma of changing government, right, of, of the birth of 
uh, independent South Asian nations. Um, and so that, that immigration trauma, I think, uh, something that's interesting to think about that I was thinking about before we started this episode was like, you know, there was this idea that um, like you could be ripped from where you were originally from this idea of, you know, like having to leave your community. Do you think that that was more normalized because the uh, trauma of independence was so recent for our parents' generation? Yeah. I mean, um, I like, I, I think so. I think not normalized, but like less of a harder pill to swallow. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So I don't like, think they were was... like, they, like life is suffering anyway. So we're just going to try to suffer in America. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Right. And like, because our parents will kind of give us the reasons of like better life, better medical care. Like I needed to go to school or I got a scholarship or, you know, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, like, it's just so interesting that we talk about there's like, there's research coming out about immigration trauma. And I'm just trying to like, you know, personally, like I'm, when I think about intergenerational trauma, I'm thinking about partition, colonization, civil wars, like these mm -hmm. involuntary situations. But we have trauma from uh, something that we chose to do, which I think is like, it's, it's just like, a hard pill for me to swallow sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So the interesting thing about that our parents' generation is that it was oftentimes a man from, you know, their native South Asian country who would decide make the decision to leave and come to the UK or the US or Canada or wherever. And then after having settled a little bit in that place, go back to their native country and find themselves a spouse. Um, right. And it was, you know, the women in this situation, they weren't totally uninformed. Like they knew that marrying a person that had settled in the U.S. meant that they would have to pick up their lives and they would have to go to the U.S. But it was not even like 100% voluntary at that point, right? It was half voluntary. There's these people, you know, I think in, in South Asian marriages, there's this idea that's that you kind of like, when you get married, you have to leave your parents' home. And that's already seen as like a sad thing. Um, but then you have to leave your parents' home and you have to go across the world to a new country and be away from everything that you've ever known and the whole culture that you grew up in. And I think that that was a different kind of trauma and maybe a little bit more deeply felt um, than the person that had originally made the decision to come to the U.S. or for couples that made the decision to come to the U.S. together. I also think there's like an aspect of um, the trauma, which is related to the fact that, you know, America was a land of dreams, right? Like that was kind of the tagline of mm -hmm for whatever many reasons our parents came, chose to come here and raise us here like that was kind of like the bill of goods that was sold to them right right and i think part of this trauma is not just like coming here and being like oh my god my life is amazing my children have this amazing life but the fact is like you know there was overt racism and yeah you know, like the dot busters which was an insane time and it was really just you know i didn't even know about dot busters until recently which is really just this racist hate group which was active i believe in like the jersey city area which we yeah. know had the high um desi population and they were like particularly active in 1975 to 1993 and they just really attacked and threatened just indian americans specifically um especially they were committing, like in 75 right they were committing physical violence and i believe a couple of people actually died as a result of their violent attacks. Yeah, like one guy died. Um, he was uh, Parsi and he died, uh, you know, just like coming out of a cafe. And like they were like specifically, obviously, dot busters kind of gives you the idea uh, of what they were doing, which was targeting women um, and girls who had bindis on or yeah. And which is not surprising in 1975. Of course, they're going to like that's like kind of right the first immigration wave was in 1965 right. so you're telling me that people in 1975 weren't wearing the, their traditional clothing like right. what an easy target we were i mean my my parents lived in the east coast in the 80s and they my mother remembers hearing about dot busters and being scared to like walk around 
because, you know, they would hear about attacks in the news and stuff. Like there, there was a hate group specifically targeting South Asians. And that's terrifying to come from a place where like you are the majority and everybody looks just like you to come to a place that's like not like the place you grew up at all, where you're suddenly a minority and you feel like you stick out. And then there's a hate group specifically targeting you. Like that's horrifying. And I just like wonder, you know, the, when they, I mean, I know like mental health, for example, was like never something that was really talked about until like our generation really, where we started to really like push into it. But, like, even then, like, you're dealing with all these things as an immigrant, but plus, like, men have this, like, women and men have these different burdens, right? Like, as you were saying, like, women are kind of, like, have to come to this country. They don't always have that choice. They just kind of have an arranged marriage, Mm -hmm. and they were coming here. Men kind of, you know, have this, like, burden that's different but equally you know so much pressure around like being the person who's keeping their family safe in the Mm -hmm. middle of all this like violence and making sure they you know take care of their homes and everything that's happening in it and like and then i think about like how trauma like that socially is passed on from both sides from both genders over time um even though it was like a voluntary originally somewhat voluntary movie. Right. I say somewhat because we don't know. Right. I mean, you know, and and so that would translate directly to like like a woman who had been living in Jersey City in the 80s. It, it would be easy to see how that would translate to her being very paranoid about her kids going out at night because her memories would probably be terrifying from, you know, that time. And it would not be surprised that she would never be fully rid of the idea that you could be targeted for violence that kind of targeting for violence doesn't leave you easily the other not like it's still happening today like you know absolutely right not like our mothers like my mother was is more scared uh you know about the fact that you know we're out late at night more for us because she doesn't trust the police because of like the situation she dealt with Right, right, right. Or, you know, after 9-11, I remember there was a surge of violence against South Asians, specifically against people of the Sikh religion who wore turbans, which, you know, it's just such a bizarre thing. But there were violent attacks against a bunch of uh, Gurdwaras. There were violent attacks against a bunch of Masjids, and there were violent attacks against a bunch of Hindu temples, and you know, people getting assaulted in the street after 9 11. Like, these things keep happening to reinforce the idea that you need to constantly be vigilant. The other thing that I think happened a lot, and we can kind of see the effects of that trickle down to, I think, our own behavior to this day and age, is that there was a lot of economic trauma that happened. I mean, people who, even if they, you know, in their home country were from a middle class family, came to the U.S. and suddenly had to start over Um, and suddenly, you know, had very little money. We're trying to survive on very little money. Um, Sometimes we're trying to raise families on very little money. And, you know, you see this kind of penny pinching, the penny pinching behavior that started as a necessity. Um, And it, it moves on to somebody who's maybe like, afraid to see the dentist because they don't know how much it's going to cost to get their teeth fixed because the idea of getting spending that much money is too horrifying for them you see it a lot um in people that hoard stuff like like the hoarding the hoarding because it's like you come from this environment where it's like oh don't throw it out you don't know when you might need you're gonna use it yeah you're always trying to avoid spending money or buying something so you always want to keep stuff just in case like my for me my personal thing is I can't get rid of glass jars I don't know why and I don't know what it is but like I saw this I saw (laughs) this repurposing happen like you know I mean like now the funny thing is now it's being labeled as like eco-friendly or whatever and it is it is eco-friendly that I save my glass jars well I also feel like uh jackass red because i bought you like a shit ton of glass jars as a housewarming like oh well, those jars. 
No, those have holes for straws. So those are technically cups. No, girl, I'm talking about like when I finish like a jam, like a bottle of jam, like a oh, bottle of jam. Oh, you're one of those. I will dishwash it and save it and put cumin seeds in it. Oh, Lord. My grandma used to do that. My grandma used to do yes. that. And, and she was a hoarder. And like, I remember like my mom used to get so upset because my, and, but you know this my mom was also a hoarder oh my gosh yes. and she was a horrible hoarder you know and it just passed on from generation to generation because like they lived in a time of like famine and then it became like they didn't have you know my grandfather passed away it had an untimely death so like mm -hmm. they were you know kind of penny pinching at the time so right. it was just like these kind of traits just passed on over and over and then your mom came to the u.s and i'm sure just like a lot of they see people first starting out they were not working with a lot of money and so the penny pinching had to continue and but you know with my mom it actually showed up in that way but then it showed up in a different way which i think talks is very related to what we we're talking about where like this kind of um well i don't want to say cultural memetics but like just this kind of idea of like cultural stuff like passing on over generations yeah is because like you know by the time my mom passed away she was making you know like a great amount of money my parents lived in a big house and they lived in a very affluent area and great you know all all the good things but when she passed away when you and i you know were like looking through all the stuff like she had what like five super expensive air diffusers three meditation like wicker meditation chairs five or six instapots like in in like literally unopened um boxes of crate and barrel like, yeah different you know things that you'd put food in so it was just crazy how it showed up not only when she we were all penny pinching when we were younger but right. also like in a place where we we're financially very secure Right. Because it, it translates to, you know, you never know when you're going to need it. You're feasting today, but you might be in a famine tomorrow. So you got to you got to keep the stuff. You got to keep the stuff just in case something bad happens. Like no matter what you're doing one way or another, whatever your behavior is, whether you're washing out Ziploc baggies or you're buying multiple Instapots, it's still informed from that original traumatic place, right? Like you're not making decisions based rationally on assessing your needs. You're not saying, you know, how many Instapots do I need for my family? One seems sufficient. Like that's not what, <laughs> yeah. that's not what your brain is saying because you're not thinking rationally. You're thinking, you know, by being informed from a place where you didn't have anything. And if you got access to something, you felt like you needed to like, hoard it and hang on to it and grab onto it because you never knew when you were going to get it again. Yeah. It's just like, it's just so interesting to watch my mom go through these like ebbs and flows of like how she continues to hoard over time, like in different yeah. parts of her life. But, you know, I think like the fact is, you know, I think about immigration trauma and I think about how it's like affecting us and like how we are going to be affecting future children or children right, right now you know and right. like i make su such you know conscious decisions of how i like deal with my children or how i interact with my children so that i'm not passing this on like mm -hmm. literally i went through kind of um like a spring or fall clean, whatever and essentially like i'm throwing things out i'm throwing out old clothes from like that i had since like ninth grade and <laughs> i feel like like i literally threw out a sports bra that i had since ninth grade which you should never have a sports bra from ninth grade did, or like did grade. this elastic even snap back no, it, it absolutely did not and like let's be honest i've had two children there's no way that i'm gonna <laughs> fit into a sports bra from high school and right. like you would not like i struggled throwing it away yeah. because like i also grew up hoarding a bunch of shit because like you know yes like i said like at this point in my life like i'm in a much different place but like we weren't always in this place you know right. and so like for me like yeah i do need my 10th grade bra because my mentality is like i never know when right. like which is weird and it doesn't make any logical sense but like like what am i going to do with a sports bra that doesn't fit me anymore 
I know. I like repurpose it into a rag something. You would have you would have you would have thought of something. You would have absolutely thought of something. And like, you know, I, I think like I think it's interesting that we are are doing this, we're acknowledging our own behaviors again. My jar washing behavior is very bizarre. I know that it's messed up. I I know that it's not helpful for me to have like 70 mismatched jars that I store random crap in. But like, you know, I, I also think that I'm probably the first person in my long familial line that has acknowledged that this is the result of something prior. And so, you know, I think if there's any chance of us like undoing these behaviors. I mean, obviously the jar washing and the bra saving is not like, you know, horrible, horrible. No, but it is kind of like, yeah, how it shows up. More, but like more catastrophic things, you know, things that things like holding in your emotions and not really talking about your feelings and letting them get pent up into anger, which is also, you know, a symptom of feeling like you need to be in fight or flight all the time, either be very meek or be blowing up. There's no in between. Like those things, I think were very unconsciously passed down generation to generation. And I think we're the first ones that are recognizing these tendencies in ourselves and saying, no, this is not helpful. I don't want the next generation to either be in a situation where they feel like they have to hold their head down and just kind of like take it or be blowing up at everybody all the time. Like there is a middle ground. We can talk about our feelings. Nothing bad will happen. Um, and so I think yeah. <laughs> like the, the, the first step, the mm-hmm. first step to undoing it is to be like, this like this is happening to us and i i think you know in our generation it might not be news to a lot of people the way that these things are passed down but i think if you go back one or two generations it would be news to them if you pointed out the pattern i don't think that they would be like i think that like they would see it once you pointed it out but i think that it's like not something that's very commonly thought about i don't even think like our parents generation like it's like occurred to them that this is generational trauma like i don't think that it's like in in different forms right like not only are we dealing with the kind of um what's it called like the physical forms of it and it's funny because like while you were talking i googled indian americans and type 2 diabetes and like you know what's the cause of it and they were like oh it's like google i mean i know it's a rudimentary search but it's like um physical inactivity obesity this that and the other and it's like well how much of that actually deals with like things from our past and how much of that is just because of who we are because you know it's just interesting to think about like what are the cause what are the actual root causes of things but more importantly i do think that part of ending this conversation needs to talk about like the sri lankan civil war and the Bangladeshi the liberation war that happened between March and December of 71 like I think that's a huge like factor because that was like that was so close to the time like we were born in the late 80s honestly you know what I mean like it's crazy how it's going to affect so many generations to come and I like really wonder how it's going to play out especially knowing that like second generation people are putting mental health first like is it going to be caught early or is it going to be like something that transpires in a different way i hope so i don't want to be under this mindset that you know we're always going to be behind colonizing populations right like i i'm not going to sit here and tell you like don't go to the gym and don't try to eat healthy because you're going to get diabetes anyway. And that, you know, like that stuff is for non-colonized populations. Like they're the ones that can get fit and avoid diabetes. Like, I'm not going to say that. I will say that it, it is helpful that we have pitfalls to look out for. And hopefully the negative effects of this won't be stretched out for as many generations past us because we're starting to see recognize the effects of these kinds of traumas and try to stop them in their tracks before they kind of snowball into something that is too big to fight back from okay so has that been traumatizing enough for you for one day 
that conversation. Yeah, I think I'm good. I've literally gone through a bottle of wine, which is <laughs> as we continue I'm, I'm, I'm teetotaling tonight, so I've had to deal with this all on a probiotic soda. This is how I'm breaking my generational trauma. I'm buying soda that's like over a dollar per can. Oh, <laughs> take, take that colonialism. How dare you spend a dollar per can? You're disgusting. It's probiotic, but you know, I still have some culture, so I'm drinking a ginger lime flavor soda. I mean, to be fair, Rashmi, like I bought $6.99 wine, so <laughs> I'm so you're you're carrying on the penny pinching drama for the rest of us. I got <laughs> I got us. <laughs> All right. So uh if you have any comments or we've uh inspired any budding researchers to dedicate their lives to studying generational trauma in South Asians, let us know about it on Instagram on gupshop.pod. See you guys soon.